This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to part two of the episode, Conversations with Women Lawyers. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with former Prime Minister Kim Campbell. For part one, we had a conversation with former Justice Minister Anne McClellan. Please make sure to have a listen. Kim Campbell has a lot of Canadian firsts after her name. First female Justice Minister. First and only female Defence Minister. Our first Prime Minister to be born in British Columbia, and so far, our only female Prime Minister. Since leaving politics, Ms. Campbell has held a number of high-profile positions with international women's leadership groups. She was chosen in 2016 by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to chair the Independent Advisory Board for Supreme Court of Canada appointments, a seven-person committee tasked with recommending judges for positions on our highest court. Ms. Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Ms. Campbell, I understand that you were later in life when you entered the law and only practiced for two years before moving on to politics. I'm, I'm... I'd like to know what brought you to the profession at that point and why you chose to move to politics so quickly. Well, I started my life as a political scientist. I was a Soviet specialist. I did my graduate work at the London School of Economics, and I spent three months in the Soviet Union in 1972. So you could say, in a way, I had a a very in-depth education in the unlaw (laughs) or (laughs) in a society that did not have the rule of law. Um, and when I came back to Vancouver, I, I was married, and uh, or married my, my last year of graduate school, a, a man from, from Vancouver, uh, where I had grown up also. And I wasn't able to get a, a, a tenure-track job in my field. I taught at the University of British Columbia, and then I taught at, uh, at Langara College. And I realized that um, you know, I, I really needed to retrain. If I wasn't going to be able to get a job in my field, I didn't want to spend my whole life as a sessional lecturer. Uh, Anyway, so I decided to go to law school because I felt that the law was a profession that one could use for many things. My father was a lawyer. My sister was a lawyer. So it wasn't foreign to me. But I didn't go to law school with the idea that I necessarily wanted to practice law. But I wanted to learn the law. And... um, And I enjoyed it very much. And what I found was, because I was a little bit older uh, and because of the things that I'd experienced, I had kind of hooks to hang things on, if I can put it that way, that things that I learned uh, really resonated with me because of my broader experience in the world and things that I thought were important. So I always enjoyed law school. But um, after the first year when I, I think I was in the top 15% of my class and I was teaching and, and actually ran for the school board. But what I found was that I really loved it, that I loved public policy. Um, so I, I mean, I, I articled and I practiced for, I think, 18 months after my call. And then I had an opportunity to go and work in the office of Premier Bennett. And that was interesting. And that that also persuaded me that I wasn't cut out to be a political staffer, that what I liked was to be uh, the person out front. Anyway, so these are all, you know, parts of my growth. But as I say, when I went to law school, um, I was more mature than some of the others. And I think actually my my decision to leave practice was related to that because I went to a wonderful firm. It is now Borden Ladner Gervais. It was Ladner Downs at the time. And but I think I should probably have gone to a smaller firm where I could have had a more uh, personally uh, developed uh, program as an article student. Big firms give you excellent articles and you do everything. But I wasn't a 25-year-old. I was, all, I was 10 years older than that. I had already chaired administrative tribunals. And I just, I was impatient and I found it, you know, 
it, it wasn't the best thing for me, although I loved the people and respected them enormously. I have no criticism whatsoever. So I, uh, you know, I, I felt that, that being a lawyer was really important uh, to how I thought, to how I saw things, but that I wanted to use that knowledge in a different context. Yes, and I'm almost certain that you were in the minority as a woman during those periods of time, both in your legal education and in your early days of practice. What was that like? Well, I graduated in the class of uh, 83 at UBC Law School, uh, now the Allard School of Law. And uh, we weren't, it, it wasn't like 10 years earlier where there really are only a handful of women. There were enough women to feel, uh, you know, a little bit like you belonged. Although there was a group that called themselves Women in Law that got together to talk about some of the challenges women faced. When I went to Article, there were some women in the law firm, uh, excellent women. And um, But it was still, um, I guess, you know, the men were the default category. Women were still seen as, you know, something sort of new and exotic and people weren't quite sure about you. I mentioned during the introduction that you uh, chair the Independent Advisory Board for the Supreme Court of Canada. I'm a lawyer, so I have natural curiosity. How is that process unfolding? How did that process unfold in 2016 and 17? Well, we've had two iterations. And in the first one, the prime minister had said that it should be a national competition. I didn't really agree with that. But as it happened, the Atlantic Canadian seat that was vacated meant that, that Atlantic Canada really sent wonderful candidates. Um, my, my goal in chairing this committee, and it's a great committee because it's got representatives of the four main bodies, the, the Judicial Council, the, the Law School Deans, the Law Society, and the Bar Association, and then yes. two excellent people who are not lawyers, Stephen Cockfee from uh, Northwest Territories, former premier there, uh, Lillian Pereza, who heads the, the equivalent of sort of the United Way in Montreal, she's, and she's trained as an engineer, so she's great for charts, and then me. <laughs> and... Uh, my goal was to, uh, I mean, there, there were terms of reference, and the it's actually a lot of work to fill out the application, and you've got to, you know, get your uh, all your cases and all this stuff. It's, it's really a lot of work. So my view was to make it a process that was very respectful of the effort people went into to participate and to give the fairest possible uh, review to all of these to these candidates but to try and give everyone the very best possible uh, uh, chance, we did the first review individually. So no group right. think. Everybody would go off, you go through, and then we'd see how much consensus there was. And where there wasn't agreement, we would argue why. So we began to the process of trying to create uh, a long list uh, that we would then interview. And again, uh, trying to make every every meeting, uh, you know, we, we thought a lot about what questions we would ask. We had a kind of template so that everyone was asked the same questions, although they were all invited to add anything they wanted to. But but so that you didn't have like one interview where the you know the, the panel was in great form and they asked this, and then another one where they were tired at the end of the day. No, everybody right. got the same process. The the questions that we asked, the references. You know, we thought about what should we ask. And as I say, always inviting people to add anything else they wanted to, but to make sure that there was a thoroughness and enough of a similarity that the process was basically uh, the same for everybody, but at the same time inviting people to add their own views. And, and then from that group, um, we did a lot of very serious 
deliberations about who should go on the shortlist to the prime minister. And again, it was really an open process where each of our members could could really be heard. I tried, and I remember when I first started doing this, that, that Stephen Cockfrey sort of said to me, well, you know, you need to be take a firmer hand. And I said, no, I don't think so. Um, that it wasn't my job to force people into a particular, I wanted everyone to feel that they could really say what they thought. And at the end, he realized that that was actually a very good way of doing it because everybody felt that they'd had a chance to participate in a meaningful way. So I hope that the, the result is good. You know, there's arguments about I was on a panel with Bob Ray at the Supreme Court uh, seminar for the Canada 150, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he said he preferred the old mm-hmm. tapping-on-the-shoulder uh, system. But I felt with this system that, you know, mm-hmm. some of the people were more or less ready to be considered, but what it meant was that this was not an old boys' club, um, that that anyone who felt right. that they had the... Um, that the interest, because it's hard, you know, you got to move to Ottawa. It's hard work being in Supreme Court of Canada. Yes. Um, and and the, the the capacity to do it should have a chance to have a fair hearing, irrespective of whom you knew. I mean, the, at the end of the day, it was the prime minister chooses from the shortlist. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, if somebody came along and wanted to do, do away with it, that's their business too. But I, I felt very respectful of the process and respectful of the people who you know, threw their, their hats in the ring and went through the effort of, of uh, wanting to be considered. Uh, and I think they were all people who were very interested in serving, and uh, Canadians should be grateful for that. Well, with the Atlantic Canadian seat so recently filled, I think I'm going to have to wait a while before you see my name. <laughs> Throughout your professional and political career, you've been known for your candor. And this is an attribute that I share, but I've also read that it's often received differently uh, between men and women in terms of when men are candidates receive one way and when women are candidates receive quite differently sometimes. Have you experienced that at all during your lifetime? Oh, I think so. I think, But I think it's also important to say that there were a lot of people who liked that about me. I mean, you know, I didn't become prime minister by having my name drawn out of a hat. So all of the things that led to my being elected leader of my party reflect the fact that for some people, you know, who I was and how I comported myself was a very positive thing. Um, yes. And, you know, it, it's easy to, to forget. I mean, I think about when people talk about Hillary Clinton being a flawed candidate because 65 million Americans, you know, put their X or pulled the lever for a woman as president, notwithstanding all of the, you know, social media, you know, attacks on her that we're, we're learning more about. So I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of people who actually are drawn to strong uh, women and, uh, you know, candid women. Uh, you think of somebody like Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she, yes. uh, you know, was a pretty, pretty tough person. So I think that, um, but I think also being candid, you know, I remember when the leadership campaign was beginning in, in our party in, in 1993, and uh, one of my colleagues came to see me, John Reimer, who's actually a very nice person, and he was the chair of what you might call the Evangelical Caucus uh, in, our, in our caucus. And, you know, I was member of parliament from Vancouver Centre. I was a post-war baby boomer, uh, feminist, uh, you know, pro-gay rights, uh, pro-choice person. I, you know, my, my values are very different from theirs. But he said, you know, will you treat us with the same respect you did uh, when you were justice minister, if you become leader. And I said, John, I'm the same person I've always been. I think that's an important thing to note is the importance of trust in building those strong relationships. 
so how would you sort of suggest that women, young women entering the profession going forward, build that level of trust with their clients? Well, you know, one of the things that uh, was interesting part of my legal education is that our class was the first to do what they called PLTP, the Professional Legal Training Program, uh, when people decided that articles needed to be enhanced by this bar course. And a lot of it had to do with people skills. And one of the things that, that our teachers of this course said was that when lawyers get sued, it's almost never because of incompetence. It's mostly because they haven't really listened to their clients and what they really want. And I think very often in professions, people think they have to have all the answers. Uh, they think they have to set themselves up as being experts in a way, not that just reflects their very valuable knowledge, but that somehow gives them uh, you know, the right to tell people what to do or to decide what needs to be done. And whether it's law or medicine or any other field, people get into trouble when they don't listen. And so what I, what I thought was interesting about that training was this notion that if you want to be a successful lawyer, you have to listen to your clients. What do they really want? Uh, what are they trying to achieve? Not what you think you would want if you were in their, their situation. And so one of the things I would say to young lawyers, and I would say this to people going into politics and to whatever you do, that respect is one of the most important currencies that you can spend. If you respect people, which means that you will listen to them, that you'll understand that they have a perspective, that there are things that they need that may not necessarily be what, what you would think of, that, that can really take you a long way. And I think going back again to John Reimer and you know, the Evangelical Caucus, who were people whose views were not my own on many issues, but I always treated them with respect. And I did that not because I'm some kind of saintly person. I did it because I understood the reality of power, that the caucus is the instrument of governing in a parliamentary democracy. And all of these people had been elected by Canadians in their constituencies. They had as much right to be part of the conversation as I did. And the fact that the prime minister had made me a minister didn't mean that it somehow gave me a blank check to force my views on, on people. And so that, that respect, which is a, a, an honest recognition of your own power and therefore the need to persuade, and again, to persuade by showing respect and by understanding where people are coming from. I think whether it's practicing law or, or practicing politics, that that's a very important frame of mind. And, you know, and if you don't show it, and, you know, I, I haven't always been perfect in this thing. You know, my early days, I mean, I got knocked around a bit. We all do. Um, because I think sometimes, maybe even as a woman, you think you're, you think you're supposed to know the answers. And uh, you come to understand that real leadership is not necessarily knowing the answers, but understanding what the questions are. So keeping along the same theme, in recent weeks, you ignited a bit of a Twitter firestorm when you retweeted a comment from a U.S. politician who used one of Samuel L. Jackson's favorite words in reference to President Trump. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you felt that there was a double standard in, in play in terms of the reaction to that tweet that you had put, up, put online. Well, it, it's not even a, a double standard. It's, it's political theater. But the funny thing is that I used asterisks, and I thought my asterisks <laughs> would save me, but apparently they didn't. And I was, you know, bouncing off her comment that she'd, that she'd been, been criticized for. But if anybody follows me on Twitter, they would know that actually I personally don't swear. And I saw some article recently that said that, said that people who swear are more authentic. And I thought, well, I guess I'm not very authentic, because actually I don't swear. I was brought up in a house where nobody sweared. I mean, hell and damn were like, whoa. 
Oh, bad words, folks. So I don't use those words, but, I, but I've become resigned to the fact that when I retweet people, that there are F-bombs all through their tweets. And if I don't ever tweet, retweet something that's got an F-bomb in it, then I often will miss the opportunity to retweet something interesting. Uh, speaking of social media, you've built quite a following over the past couple of years uh, through your Twitter handle, at A. Kim Campbell. Uh, I think now you're over 36,000 followers. Well, and I have to say that after that controversy, I think I popped up by about five <laughs> or 6,000. So maybe I need to do more of this. It could be, could be. But you, you seem to have a bit of a resurgence going in terms of being a cool kid again among the uh, younger members of Canadian society. And I'm just wondering what you attribute that to. Well, I think it's also the fact that I say what I think. Now, incidentally, I don't tweet yes. much about Canadian politics. I don't think it's appropriate. I'm kind of an elder states person. I will sometimes retweet things if I think they're informationally really important. And I have a lot of problem with climate deniers. I mean, that's climate deniers and racists. That bothers me. But I don't. I think anybody who follows my Twitter feed knows what my values Absolutely. are because I have, you know, there's lots of grist for the mill in American politics. And what I try to do also is I try to retweet things. I mean, most of my tweets are retweets of things that I think are interesting, like useful articles or useful analyses of things that my, my Twitter followers can either follow up or not as they wish. So to me, empowering people with knowledge is really important. Uh, and as a politician, I tried to do that. And my experience is that most people can understand anything if you explain it carefully, if you define your terms and explain it, if you sort of sail in and start using a bunch of jargon, no, their eyes will glaze over. But most people are perfectly intelligent and can understand things. And so in my Twitter feed and my social media, what I try to do is retweet people that I think have something valuable to say and that whose ideas and knowledge and expertise that they demonstrate will empower my Twitter followers to be better informed in engaging in these conversations. That's sort of really, uh, I guess, the... And then every once in a while, I throw in my own comments, like, you know, he really is a blankety-blank. Yes. <laughs> and all that that entails in terms of increasing my Twitter followers. Yes, I may try that tomorrow. <laughs> Female politicians in particular become targets of forms of hatred on social media when they have stepped outside the lines that society has drawn around them in terms of expected behavior. If you had it to do over again, would you factor social media into a decision to go into politics? Well, I think you have to now. Uh, happily, it didn't exist when uh, I was in public life. I think, though, that uh, there have always been mean people and uh, unfair coverage. And I think what is interesting now and what I have... what what engaged me a lot once I was out of uh, public life was to look at this body, growing body of research in social and cognitive psychologists, psychology that helps us to understand where some of the unfairness and double standards come from. And we now have a better understanding of things like implicit attitudes, all these cognitive biases, the things that lead us to say, you know, it's okay for Donald Trump to do this, but it's not okay for Hillary Clinton to do that, you know, where we get the gender bias. And it's not just gender, it's other, you know, any non-prototypical person who sets himself up to be a leader is going to find that uh, they may be much more harshly judged. All have attitudes that come from the landscape in which we grew up. And so we may intellectually think, oh, yeah, women should be able to do this. But if we've never seen a woman doing it, then when we see a woman, somebody who looks or sounds like a woman, 
playing a certain role, we go, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. But you'd rather walk over hot coals than ever acknowledge that maybe you were sexist. So you, you don't give that person the benefit of the doubt. As soon as she makes some kind of error, an error you would easily forgive in somebody else, you go, aha, you see, she doesn't belong there. And right. that makes you comfortable. So these are all things that we know much more about now than we did when I was in public life. I mean, I wish I had that knowledge. Uh, we, we, we understood it kind of um, viscerally. You know, the old saying at law school, you know, he's forceful, she's a bitch, these kinds of things. I mean, women lawyers have been uh, dealing with those things. And, and again, because of the adversarial uh, aspects of law, particularly for barristers, you know, that's always been a challenge for women to figure out how to, uh, to play that role without triggering uh, negative stereotypes. It's, it's not, not always straightforward. But the, but the real challenge is that the more people who do it, and when I was talking to somebody about this recently, I mentioned that when women take on, or anybody on prototypical, takes on a role that no one like them has ever done before, maybe there's a few human sacrifices, but eventually it changes people's views of who gets to do that job. And, uh, and I've just been uh, reading, because I'm doing a little blurb for a book that Sylvia Bashevkin has written and edited uh, called Doing Politics Differently, which is about the nine women who have been first ministers in provincial and territorial governments in Canada. There have been nine of them. And, uh, and very interesting that they're not all alike, uh, but I've always felt that the more of women at that level who are visible as leaders, the more we get used to somebody who looks and sounds like that doing that job. Yes, I have so many follow-up questions right now. Uh, but I, I'm going to start with uh, an article that was written by uh, Professor Alice Woolley of the University of Calgary Faculty of Law mm -hmm. and Alyssa Darling that was published two years ago in the University of San Francisco Law Journal. The article is entitled Nasty Women in the Rule of Law, and it is actually focused upon the media attention that uh, women lawyers receive. And it, primarily focused upon the media attention that Hillary Clinton received. And in it, there's a number of media quotes, uh, such as, she's such a nasty woman. There's just something about her that feels castrating, overbearing, and scary. She undoubtedly suffered in the trial, but she was not likable. Marie Heinen is a successful female lawyer at the top of her profession, period, total bitch, period, not a feminist, period. Uh, how much do you think the media attention on women lawyers and women in power impacts the bias that people have. Well, I think it does. And, you know, again, going back to this question of implicit attitudes, when I was uh, running for the leadership and when I became prime minister, the hardest time I had with, was, was with journalists who were in the Ottawa Press Gallery because they covered national yes. politics all the time. And I remember one journalist looking at me, sort of curling his lip and saying, you know, I've known every prime minister since Lester Pearson. And the implication was, you know, and you're no Lester Pearson. I thought, well, no, I'm not. I don't look or sound like any of my predecessors. <laughs> so if I went out into the rest of the country, you know, if I was in Saskatoon, they might be much more interested in my views on, you know, did I support the wheat board? What did I think about rural depopulation? Because for them, national politics wasn't the thing they covered all the time. But people in the Ottawa Press Gallery sort of feel they, they own it. And you come along and you don't look or sound like anybody else who's done that. And they just can't get over that. But what's really the ethical challenge for journalists is understanding their own implicit biases, their own attitudes, the filter through which they are uh, interpreting information. And that's the hard thing for people to understand, that if you really believe that a woman you know, could, cannot be as smart as a man, you will look for reasons to justify that. 
Whereas a man, I remember when I was at the um, the Kennedy School right after the election, I did two fellowships there, one at the Institute of Politics and one at the Shorenstein Center on the Press and Politics. And in the latter one, I had to write a, a monograph on some aspect of the press and politics. So I looked at the coverage of the 93 election and I thought, I can't be dispassionate about it, I can't be objective. So I'll look at what the press said about it. And I had this huge archive of, you know, the bricks of, of all the, the, the press and transcripts of my scrums and all this stuff. And what was interesting is that the theme of the coverage was how unfair the coverage was. Journalists saying this, and they say things like, Kim Campbell said such and such, and we jumped all over her. Jean Chrétien said the same thing, and we left him alone. Gee, that Jean Chrétien sure can manipulate the media. But of course, he wasn't manipulating the media. He belonged. So if he put his yes. foot in his mouth, he would say, oh, there's just old Jean, he's misspeaking. If I said something, and even if I didn't say it, it was like, aha, you see, there, that proves she doesn't belong. She's, you know, not up to it, that kind of thing. So it's this huge double standard that people bring, depending on whether they think you belong, uh, you're one of them. That's the other thing, that there's some really interesting, uh, there's a scholar called David Rast at U of A, he did a wonderful talk to our students about, uh, about leadership as a kind of a group process, the relationship between leaders and followers. And if followers think that the leader is one of them, They'll forgive everything. And you see this with Donald Trump. You know, his yes. dog whistles, what he says to people, like, I'm really one of you. So they don't care about obvious dishonesty, corruption, whatever, because he's one of us. So if you are not one of them, and that's why I actually think that Hillary Clinton's accomplishment was so extraordinary that she got more votes than any presidential candidate ever who wasn't, ever. Named, who wasn't named Obama. And yes. and we know we're starting to understand what the the campaign the uh, the social media campaign about her was you know that she wanted to bring in Sharia law and and how targeted it was at people who were most likely to respond to it or be discouraged by it and, and not vote that notwithstanding that she got three million more votes than Trump so I think it is important to say that all of these challenges that exist there are a lot of people who like women in power who trust women. You know, I, I served, I, I chaired a foundation in Kiev for several years, and I remember meeting with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in, in Kiev. There was a group of Canadians who were doing business there. Most of them got too, too stung when they first went, they went home, but there were a few who stood it out. And one man said to me, I will only do business with companies led by women. Hmm. You know, he said they're, they're, they're honest, they deliver, they do it. Um, and the corruption seemed to, he, in his view, was much more experienced through men. So there are, you know, and, and when I was, you know, the summer of 93, when I was traveling the country as prime minister, and little old men would run up and go, oh, you're going to be here, Maggie Thatcher. You know, I mean, as far as they were concerned, <laughs> I was the bee's knees. You know, yes. I was going to be Canada's Margaret Thatcher. And even though I was quite different from Margaret Thatcher, um, they didn't see the fact that I was a woman as anything negative. They loved it. And yes. so I think it is important to understand that these things are real, and they're often very much connected with people who are rivals for power. I mean, I always say to people, power is real, and, um, and people will do a lot to get it. And if you would exercise it ethically and in the national interest, why shouldn't you have it? But, you know, it is real. So often the closer people are to the power struggle, the, the sharper their, their criticisms are. Anne McClellan and Kim Campbell were both groundbreakers in their day, ushering Canada through difficult social issues, laws surrounding abortion and rape, 
and Canada's response to 9-11 and the threat of terrorism. Since leaving politics, they've continued to advocate and be advocates for women, taking the rightful place beside men as heads of state and business. Both managed to succeed in despite of the discrimination they faced as women in a man's world. But of course, that's why they're in the history books. If you have something to say about discrimination in the legal profession and how you overcame it, please drop us a line because we'd like to hear your story. Thank you.